Dear Lord, we thank you for a time to celebrate and a time to remember, a time to worship as we recognize the incredible sacrifice that you've given. And Lord, there are many today who are in need of the grace that you afford. So Lord, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit today. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, that you would bring to life, God, our need and our recognition for who you desire for us to be and the power that you have to transform our lives. So, God, speak to us now and open the eyes of our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. We'll be in Genesis 38 and 39 today, and I've titled this sermon NC-17. And, and I, don't, I don't know that I've ever been in a church where we've even uh, mentioned chapter 38. It's one of those chapters in the Bible that you just kind of skip over and you keep going uh, because there's not a lot of encouragement. Uh, there's not a lot, a lot of redeeming qualities that you see in chapter 38. And I encourage you as parents uh, to go home and read that chapter tonight. Now that I've said that, I'm sure the kids will go read it too. Uh, but it really is an NC-17 chapter. It's a, a pretty graphic chapter of Scripture it's one in which scholars debate, is this really where it belongs? Uh, because there's 37, the life of Joseph, and then we see the story of Judah and kind of his escapades, and then we jump back to chapter 39. And I do believe that it is there on purpose and in God's sovereignty, he's allowed it to be there because we see the contrast of a life of a man who has no self-control, who constantly fulfills his self-indulgences, as opposed to a man who exercises tremendous self-control and tremendous character. We see the life of Judah, the life of Joseph. Now, if there were ever a Jerry Springer family, uh, poor Joseph had one. I mean, as you look back at his ancestry, I mean, it's like he could go on the Jerry Springer show today and, and just be a hit. I mean, it's just dysfunctional. If you ever feel like your family's dysfunctional, then you just need to read these chapters in Genesis and you'll realize, hey, uh, we got problems, but we're not that bad. Yeah, I mean, you look at the life of Joseph and you look at his family and people from his ancestry, starting off with his father, Jacob and Esau. Here's Jacob and Esau, and here's a brother cheating his other brother out of his birthright, and then that brother Esau wanting to kill Jacob. So Jacob takes off. He goes to live with his uncle Laban uh, nearly 100 miles away. He gets over there, and he's tricked by his uncle into marrying his second daughter, of whom he was not attracted to and didn't want to marry. But I guess after, after the darkness and after the drinking and all that time of partying, he wakes up and he goes, oh, it's you, Leah. And now he has to work another seven years in order to marry her sister, Speaking of dysfunctional, we're now married two sisters, by the way. He didn't want to marry you, but he married you first, and now I'm in the household. And let's throw in a couple of concubines. At the same time, we'll have children by all of them. Uh, Joseph's off to a good start here uh, with his parents. And then we move on, and we see Simeon and Levi, his two brothers, who they are uh, probably honorable to some degree because their only sister, Dinah, is raped by some men in Shechem. So they go back uh, to kind of provide some justice. They get there and they discover what's happened. And the man says, I tell you what, uh, here's what we'll do. We'll do anything to make this right. And we'd like to marry your, your daughter and we'll do whatever you ask. We want to make this right. And so they devise a scheme and said, hey, here's what we'll do. You can't come into our family unless 
you've all been circumcised. So all the men are circumcised in that town. Even the innocent men, even the men that had nothing to do with it, they're all circumcised. What after the circumcision, circumcision, you're not feeling real good at this point. Simeon and Levi decide to go in and kill all the men, even the men that had nothing to do with it. There are only a couple of them, but they kill all the men, and then they take their women and their plunder. And so you're talking about the height of dysfunction here. We continue on. If that's not enough, then you got Reuben, the oldest son, and Bilhah. Bilhah, guess what? Is his concubine stepmother, all right? And he has uh, relations with her. And this is Joseph's family. I mean, if anybody ever had the opportunity to go, you know, at least I'm not as bad as they are. I mean, have you ever been that place in your life where things are tough, you're up against the wall, and you feel like you're the only one? No one else is standing for righteousness, and you're just tempted to kind of fall away. You're tempted to find yourself maybe drinking more than you should, maybe using substances that you shouldn't use, maybe entering in a relationship you know you have no business in getting involved with. You find yourself, you know, things are tough right now and everybody else is a mess and life's just hard and <clears throat> things have not gone well for me vocationally or maritally or, or in any other compassion and capacity and you know it, it's not that big of a deal or i just need an out right now well we see a man judah who certainly took every out that came his way in chapter 38 but we see a man joseph who consistently regardless of the cost regardless of the price determines that he will act righteously that he will live in a god-honoring manner so what happens in this story anyway with Judah? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Here's, here's kind of the, the, what happens. As a matter of fact, I, I think also this passage is in here because uh, it reminds me of a word called dis, disequilibrium. You know what that is? That's like when you kind of lose your balance and you really have to hold on to something. You have to kind of catch yourself. And when you read passages like this in the Bible, in chapters like this, it kind of throws off your whole little neat, clean, uh, everybody's Pollyanna uh, Christianity. Because you see, I mean, this is just the depth of sin here and moral depravity. And so it just kind of smacks you in the face and you realize that people really live this way. Well, here's the story. Judah, uh, after the time, matter of fact, we see it right there in 38, about the time, about the time, in other words, after he has sold Joseph into slavery, his brother, by the way, we don't know if it's the conviction or if it's just, I want to go out and, and sin all I want, whatever it is, he leaves his father's home and he goes down into a Canaanite city called Adullam. And he gets down there and he hooks up with a friend of his who recognized no one in this community is of the faith of Yahweh. No one at this point is following Jehovah God. They are practicing the Canaanite religion. And he goes down there, and, and most of them were worshiping Baal. Some of them worship multiple gods. He goes down there, and he finds a lady, and he marries her. And, and the problem is not that she's from another nation or she's another nationality. The problem is the gods that her society and her family probably have grown up worshiping. The God of Baal and the Canaanite gods, there's, there's multiple gods, but they find themselves worshiping God who believes or whom the people believe that temple prostitution is a vital part of worship. Cultic prostitution, in other words, they have relationships, they have sex with these women in the, 
in the name of religion, in the name of some of the fertility gods, in order to hopefully uh, benefit our crops. Now, I don't know that any women were really buying this, any wives were really buying this. This is really just a big, overdone Mardi Gras festival to sin. You know what I mean? That's what I really believe was happening. But nevertheless, they had kind of placed in their society this form of religion. They would even sometimes practice child sacrifice. This is the problem that I believe that God has is the religion, is the faith. It is the multiplicity of gods, the polytheism. And what they do and what they call worship. So Judah finds himself married to a Canaanite woman. Of course, he has children. He has three boys. And the Bible tells us because of their tremendous wickedness, they're killed. They die. They die. Where do you think they learn this from? You think they learned it because Judah was teaching them about the, the teachings that he had learned as he was growing up as a boy? about Yahweh God. Do you think that that's where it came from? No. He's entering into the culture and he's engaging. He's probably worshiping, so to speak, just like they're worshiping. And two of his boys just kind of completely follow the cart to the point that they're killed. And then the first one had a, had a wife. Her name's Tamar, and Tamar, a Canaanite as well. But under Judah's Authority under Judah as the patriarch, she, he's supposed to take care of her now that her husband, her first son has died, or her first husband's died, who's Judah's oldest son. Then the second one, it was a practice, the elaborate marriage system of where if the uh, if you had a daughter-in-law and her husband died, she'd be given to the next son if she didn't have a son in order that she might be socially taken care of and provided for because women were dependent upon the work of men during this time. And so that was supposed to what was to occur, but uh, it happens the first time. But after the second one, Judah decides, you know, I don't know that I want to give my third son to you. So he sends her back to her parents. Go live with your mom and dad and let them support you and take care of you. So Judah is not following his faith by any means, and he's not even following the cultural practices and mores of the society that he's living in. So what happens? Well, a year or two later, Judah's wife dies, and Judah decides to go to the sheep-sharing festival, so to speak, where they're shearing these sheep and where they would have a big party. Uh, they would also do some things in the name of their religion. And, and on the way over there, he notices, hey, there's one of those temple prostitutes. There's one of those cultic prostitutes there. And he decides that he will worship in that manner, so to speak. And so who is it? But lo and behold, it's Tamar. But he doesn't know because Tamar has her face veiled. She's been gone at least a year or two at this point. It's probably dark. And he goes in and he asks her for the price. And she tells him. Uh, as a matter of fact, he offers her a, a goat. And she says, well, I'll need something to, to make sure that you deliver and this tells us that he's totally doing this on impulse because he has nothing. Well, he says, she says, well, he said, what would you like? He, she says, well, why don't you give me your staff, your seal, and its cord? Now, that would be equivalent today to our driver's license and social security number or maybe a birth certificate. It's the identifying mark. It's how you do trades. It's how you identify yourself. It's your mark. It's your seal. It's your identification number, so to speak. And so he 
just ridiculously hands all this stuff over to her, just like you handing your stuff, your social security number over to someone you don't know. He gives it to her and he goes on about his business. He comes back and he asks some of his friends, hey, where's that prostitute that works out here? He goes, we don't have a prostitute that works out here. Well, no, no, I gave her my seal and my cord and we don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that's great. So they go continue on and again, Judah is so wrapped up in this system, in this lifestyle, that he doesn't even see the price and the penalty that's being paid by himself and those around him. He continues on, and about three months later, he hears Tamar, who's his economic responsibility, who's his social responsibility to take care of. Of course, he's sent her to live with her parents. He hears that she's gotten pregnant, three months pregnant. And what does he say? Well, bring her on out here and we'll burn her. Now, where did that come from? That's also from the Canaanite religion. We'll burn her at the stake. Well, that's good, Judy. You're doing so well. Um, I'm sure your mom would be so proud of you today. So he brings her out. And what does she do? She's savvy enough. She goes, this child belongs to the owner of this staff and this seal and this cord. And everybody knew it was Judah's. And Judah even says, you're more righteous than, than I. It's pretty bad when you're saying, okay, you've, you've been a prostitute and you've uh, misrepresented yourself and sex, but you're doing better than I am. I mean, Judah, he, re, he recognizes it right there. And, and then uh, things don't get a whole lot better, by the way. But nevertheless, we go to chapter 39 and we see the, just the antithesis, the exact opposite of what Judah. We see Judah, a man of self-indulgent, who has no self-control, who falls to sin, who engages in the culture that he lives in, who, if it feels right, do it, to the story of Joseph. And talk about a man who was in difficult circumstances. Talk about a man who endured significant pressures. Joseph would be that man. If you think anybody has really been persecuted and you think somebody who, every time they make a step forward, gets kicked back two steps behind. It was certainly Joseph. He certainly found himself in that situation. Let's look at that in chapter 39, if you'll read with me. Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, Potiphar was probably in charge of the security. He was probably uh, what we would refer to as the uh, head of the Secret Service or the FBI. He was the chief executioner, and he was in charge of the safety of the Pharaoh and of the nation here. And so Potiphar is probably a pretty tough guy. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. Now, that phrase is going to be used four times in this chapter. You're going to see it two times right here in this passage and then two times toward the end. Now, remember that we're speaking about Joseph who's in slavery, but the Bible clearly tells us that the Lord was with him and he prospered. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. And when the master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, and again, there's that phrase, and the Lord was with him, Joseph found favor in, in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted his care and everything he owned. 
from the time he put him in charge of this household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph in care of everything that he had. With Joseph, he was in, when Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. That phrase right there is used not in that exact form, but it's only used two other times in the Bible to describe someone. It was David and Absalom. But we see here Joseph, and women, you know exactly what this means. He was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. In case you're wondering if he knew what she was saying, he knew. It was pretty clear. Okay, it's pretty explicit. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. He says, first of all, I'm not going to do it because of my relationship with my master, because he trusts me and because that would violate my ethics and my work code. Number two, he says, no one is greater in the household than I am. My master has held nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Number two reason I'm not going to do it is because of the sanctity of marriage, because you were married. Number three, he continues, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God because of my faith, because of my ethics, because of the sanctity of marriage, and because of my faith, because of my relationship with God Almighty. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, so this was consistent, this was not a one-time thing, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He stayed away from her. He didn't find himself in close proximity to temptation as much as possible. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. You remember, Judah willfully gave his possessions to Tamar. Joseph has them taken away from him. He's trying to do what's right, but here he's lost another coat. And so he continues on and says, when he saw that, or when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew, kind of anti-Semitic, isn't it? All of a sudden she brings the race card in here and she calls him a Jew. Probably none of the other slaves were Jewish, but she refers to him in that manner amongst the other Slaves. This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. That as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard this story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Now, 
we don't know. I, this is I'm simply con- conjecturing here that, but the penalty for a slave who attempts to r- rape a master's wife would have been certain death. So you have to wonder if he totally believed her. If there wasn't something about Joseph's character, he realized I have to do something. But he, he doesn't have him killed. Continues. It says this. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. And this would have certainly been a prison that he had authority over, seeing that he's the chief of security. But the Lord was with him. Think about this. Think about what Joseph just encountered, what's just occurred. And then we see that phrase again. And the Lord was with him. He's in prison. He's in a pit. He's in a dungeon. Not because he's done anything wrong, but because he's been righteous. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And the Lord was with him. It's interesting. We see it start off with that theme of prosperity. We're talking about biblical prosperity. And we see it end with that theme that the Lord was with him. And what he would do would succeed. But yet, he found himself riding, sort of, so to speak, up the ladder only to get knocked off because of the choice of others. Interesting, isn't it? But yet God keeps emphasizing in his word that he is with him. And we see that picture of character. We see that picture of righteousness. We see that picture of what it means to resist temptation, of what it means to exercise self-control, right after we've seen a passage of what it means not to do it. And how does he do it? Well, we see, first of all, it's interesting, Joseph experiences a promotion. When he first gets there, he doesn't have to work in the fields. He gets to work in the house. And then after a little time, because of his work ethic, because of his character and his integrity, he wins esteem in his supervisor and his boss and his master's eyes. He's found favor. Thirdly, we see that he becomes the personal attendant. So I've gone from someone who simply works in the house to being the personal attendant of the master. And then lastly, we see that he's put in charge over everyone in the household. He becomes the overseer of the entire estate. He's given this position of overseer because he learned to be a servant and because he was faithful as a servant. He demonstrated character and work ethic as a servant. And then he becomes the overseer. Then he's propositioned. He's propositioned by his master's wife, who certainly was his authority as well. And she propositions him. And it's interesting. He may be the slave, but she's the slave to lust because she can't quit coming over and over and over again. You know, we uh, last week went uh, to uh, the other side of the Metroplex and we were coming back. And my wife, my family, we were coming back and we passed this sign and it says this. It says, 
totally nude dancers. And my wife goes, how do they do that? And I knew what she was asking. She was asking, how does that happen? How does that, how does that legal, how does that all work? And, and, uh, and I got to thinking about how just blatant it was. I mean, it's just like right in your face. Here's the woman. It's painfully obvious what they're targeting. You know, married men, single men, any men uh, are just being targeted here. And it's just blatant right in your face. And it's consistent. Every time you drive down that road, you see a couple of those signs. And they're getting nicer and nicer. And the women are starting to look classier. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, it's just very strategic. So we see this, these messages that are blatant, persistent, and strategic. That's exactly what was happening to Joseph. He was blatantly being propositioned. And it was sustained. It was continual. Hey, you know, we're going to participate in Lent, if you want to call it that, for 40 days of prayer and devotion beginning two weeks from today. And I want to strongly encourage you to pray about taking this, making this 40-day commitment. Well, one of the reasons we do it, one is so that you can begin to feed your spirit and to begin to develop some spiritual habits. But another one is that you can remove something from your life and let the Spirit of God kind of expose some things that, that sometimes we miss. I, I remember a couple of years ago I did a, a media fast for, for a week. Didn't, didn't think that much about it. I just thought it would be hard. I thought that's, this is a good – I haven't done a fast like this before. So I didn't do television, radio, or newspapers, and then tried to just not even look at billboards on the side, on the, on the side of the road. Well, after a week, I remember going back and looking at it, and it's just like things just jumped out at me. I, I didn't realize how much – of my culture and just how much of my everyday life I am being bombarded with messages that are the antithesis of God's Word. I mean, they promote uh, sexual immorality. They promote the destruction of the family, and they're all around us. Joseph certainly knew that pressure, but yet he stood firm. How? Well, first of all, how do we do it? How did Joseph do it? We do it the same way, by committing to God's standards. First of all, we saw, uh, as we looked in this passage, that he determined not to abuse the trust of his master. He would not violate the sanctity of marriage. And that he would make his faith, his religious faith, a priority. He would not sin against God. Also, he probably understood the consequences of those sins. Now, I'm not going to go through it with you, but in your bulletin, uh, Swindoll, I've shared this a couple times before, Swindoll lists some of the consequences of marital infidelity. And I encourage you to just look at that and take that home and keep that. Uh, and we're not going to go through that today, but it magnifies the consequences of sin. Number three, be accountable to someone. Be accountable. You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 27:17. Uh, as iron sharpens iron, so does man sharpen man. Be accountable. Ladies, be accountable to someone. Men, be accountable to someone. And guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What we constantly see and what we constantly receive and we find ourselves just glossing over ultimately starts to penetrate into our heart into our very spirits, into our very character, into who we are. Joseph understood this, and he kept himself pure. You know, it's always easy to rationalize it, 
And Judah lived in a culture where he probably heard these messages and it was just easy to fall into. Everyone else is doing it. And that was true in Judah's world when he left his homeland. Everyone was doing it. I'll just try it once, I'm sure he said when he first started. I'll just try it this one time. But then he was captured. It's, it's just for a little while. It's just a little lie. It's just a little sin. No one ever really needs to know. No one will ever find out. But yet we see what happens to his boys. No one will get hurt. Oh, really? If I don't do it, someone else will. I, I deserve it. Isn't that the message we hear all the time? I deserve it. You deserve a break today. So get up and get away and have a drink. Have a snort. Have a partner. Have whatever. And we hear that message scream to us loud enough that we think, yeah, I need a break. Things have been tough for me. And we excuse it away. What about you? You find yourself captured in the snares. And the problem is, is once we get there, it's awfully hard to get out without some damage and some pain and some hurt. And it's usually not just us. There's usually a price to be paid by those we love the most. Here's Joseph, though, in that situation. And not only that, he's experiencing perjury. He's misrepresented and he's misunderstood. Lies have been made up about him. And then he finds himself in, a, in an awful predicament. He's being mistreated and he's stuck in a prison. You know, if ever anybody had an excuse to say, I quit, it would have been Joseph. Over and over and over, I've done what's right. And here's where it's ultimately landed me. I'm a slave in a foreign country in a prison. You know, that would seem an incredibly difficult situation right there. Just look at it this way. Suppose that somehow you found yourself in a Mexican prison in Mexico. And not only that, you were regarded as a slave. Where do you go from there? Joseph had to wonder, where has my faith taken me? Yet he chose to trust. Yet he chose to believe. And the Bible uses this phrase over and over. And the Lord was with him. Because the Lord was with him. In yesterday's devotional, if you look at what biblical prosperity is, it would be this. It's what we take away from this life. There are three things. Number one, when I leave this life, I want this to be said. I want to have the satisfaction of knowing that I fulfill the call of God as a father, as a husband, as a minister, and as a believer in Christ. Number two, success is this. It's measured in what I have put away in eternal rewards. What I have done here that will make an eternal impact. And thirdly, the security. The takeaway I have is the security of knowing God that He has forgiven me and that I will be in heaven for eternity one day. That's what it means for God to be with us. For us to recognize that He's with us and that we can have the understanding that no matter what our circumstances, we can glorify Him and bring Him honor. Matter of fact, in greater pain comes greater glory for His honor. We can know that God is using us 
And God is using our situation for His kingdom's glory. And we can have the security of knowing that we worship a sovereign God who will take it and use it and make it new. It doesn't release the pain. Joseph continually probably felt lonely, embittered, hurt, abused. It didn't change those things. And it was, we see, 13 years later, at least, before Joseph sees any light, so to speak, at the end of this tunnel. But God takes it. And today we study the life of Joseph, not because he had a Pollyanna Christian life, not because he had difficult things that happened to him, but because he had difficult things that happened to him, and yet he was faithful. Hey, that's what I want on my tombstone one day. That's what I want my children to remember. And yet he was faithful. What about you? Let's pray. Father, it is so difficult in days like this, Father, to find ourselves making a commitment to follow you in the midst of people who have completely different values. Lord, I know that uh, it's not easy in the workplace. It's not easy in the school system. But that doesn't change the fact that you have called us to know you and to live a life that is pleasing and righteous and glorifying to you. And, Lord, I know there are many in this room who have fallen, who have made bad choices. And, God, you long to renew and to restore. Uh, But that also means the beginning of repentance and confession. So, Lord, I pray that those who are on that journey, those who have been up against the wall and felt like, I just need to take a break. I'm just going to leave for a while. I'm going to compromise this one time. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their resolve and renew their strength and renew their faith this day. Lord, for those who have suffered because of the sin and the, the uh, Lord, just the poor choices of others, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them. You would let them know that you are growing them in this time, that you are loving them this time, and Lord, that you are with them. God, I pray that they would sense your presence, that you would grow them in the grace and the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for what you do in spite of our circumstances. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.